Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sports Virus Podcast, everybody. I'm Joe Castellano. Today's guest is Josh Towers, a former pitcher in the major leagues with the Blue Jays, Orioles, and Yankees. Spent eight years in a major league uniform, and we're going to talk about what happened with the lockout, his career, and a little bit about wiffle ball with Josh Towers, conversation that we had on Monday. Josh, how are you doing? Uh, I always enjoyed watching you pitch because you were such a great competitor. Appreciate you coming on here today. Joe, what's up, man? It's, it's, uh, it's been a long time you and me chatting up, dude. I'll tell you what. I know. It has been a long time. Uh, you know, man, I was thinking about it that you were pitching in Rochester when I was there. That was over 20 years ago. I mean, that's hard to believe. I think you just turned 45 years old, right? <laughs> it it uh, kind of does sound different when you say it like that. When I think back <laughs> to, like, the year 2000, it doesn't really seem that long ago. But, guys, man, there's guys in the big leagues now that weren't even born then. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wonder what it's like for somebody who is a former player watching what was going on with a lockout that was going on for 99 days. I know you're still a big baseball fan. So what kind of frustrations were you feeling as a former player? Uh, not the same as other people. I mean, I've been down this road with these uh, deals. You know, we seem to do them every couple of years or four years about. Uh, I've been in the meetings here in Vegas and other places. Uh, when I first got to the big leagues, I think Sidney Ponson put me in charge of the Orioles at a very young age. So you, you kind of, you know, you see this stuff and you have to, you know, you represent your team and then you represent all of baseball and you have to do what's best for the game. And, and, and we, we have a tendency to forget about the past and how we got to this point. We, we have a tendency to forget about why guys are getting 300 million and why these one year uh, I don't even know what you want to really call them. These one-year whatever deals for eighteen point two million and twenty million that never were even an option a few years back. Like I think we forget how we got here. Um, we forget that the reason we even have free agency in baseball and the and the person who stood up for that is not even he's like boycotted from our game, but yet it's the greatest thing that ever happened to our sport was free agency. So like. It, like the, what really goes on in these meetings is vital, not just for today's game. The fact that we're playing in 2022 and uh, we're going to be close to being on time—it's it's vital for the future, for for my kids and, and the kids after. And it's never about us in the moment as much as it is about the future. And so people don't understand what's really at stake and what we're really arguing about. We only get the headlines of major league minimum going up, which no one cares about, uh, and you know just dumb stuff like that. But the reality of what we're really arguing about is the future of the game and other players of, uh, of tomorrow that aren't here yet that don't have any clue what we're doing, but will it's, it's very important. And if we didn't stand up for a lot of this stuff, um, baseball would be in a bad place. I was, I was, it was years ago, man, I'm out here in Vegas and the captain of the, uh, Ireland rugby team was out here, mutual friends. And we went out to a pool one day and having drinks and we started chatting and I was telling him about the players union and, and all the things that, that it does and how powerful it is and, and how we probably are the best union in the world. And he was blown away because they don't have anything like that. And their names aren't on the back of their jerseys. They're sponsored by what the team tells them to. And they have no – it's like playing in Mexico in essence. Oh, here, you either take this amount of money and that's it or go beat it. And they don't have anything like that. And I forget – I think people forget and we forget how powerful it is what we have and why we must – fight back when the owners say we're locking you out and we're like all right game on let's go 
Oh, yeah. And what what you said about the minimum salary, that's interesting because I do think the average fan thought that was a, you know, a good bump up. I guess it was like 20 percent from 50. I'm sorry, 570,000 up to 700,000 for the minimum salary. But for you, that's not a big deal, I guess. Right. Because of everybody else that's involved. Yeah, it's not, it's not a big deal. I mean, keep in mind, if it was a big deal, the owners would fight to uh, to not raise it a little harder. I mean, the more my rookies get paid, the more these free agents are going to get paid by default, right? And and we're, we're handing out a lot of money, so if the owners want more in their pocket, I mean, they would start to nip it in the butt at the early stages. Um, now, for me, the major league minimum, like, you have to earn what you get in life, and we're rushing these kids to the big leagues nowadays because the draft has really changed the game. And so... Rushing them to the big leagues and then handing them, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars every two weeks once they get there is just insane to me. Uh, like at some point, you have to earn what you get. And if I'm collecting a paycheck every two weeks in the big leagues, where I'm, uh, my paycheck's fifty or sixty thousand uh, dollars, I pretty much have it made. Um, and so, at some point, where am I earning what I'm getting in life? Where am I? Where, where's the? You know, where's the? That I want that. No, I, I have that. Like, when I got to the big leagues, and I'm not comparing my, you know, when we played, well, I don't care about any of that. But, you know, we weren't going into Gucci with, with you know, one of the big-time players of our game. I wasn't going into Gucci with Carlos Delgado thinking that I can buy a Gucci bag um, for four grand. Like, that was uh, over half my paycheck, right? Maybe more. Um, nowadays, I can go in there with these major league rookie paychecks and buy a couple Gucci bags, and it won't even notice it's gone. Um <laughs> That says a lot to, to, to my approach to the game, and if, if I think I have to earn something or if I feel like I've kind of made it when I got there. So it, it, it does alter the game a little bit, but when it comes to like how we portray it to, to the, the common person outside of the game, like, oh, they're fighting over 20 grand for rookies, no, it's just like we have to give them something, so let's just give them that. It's one of those things. Yeah. Were you surprised that it wasn't a unanimous decision to accept and that you had this committee and they were saying, no, we're, we're not going to accept the offer, but they went to the 30-team player representatives and those guys, they voted almost overwhelmingly the opposite way and said, hey, let's do this. Were you surprised that it was divided that way? Um, are you talking about from the players' perspective? Yeah, from the players' union, because it, it wouldn't have been voted in if not for the fact that the they went to the player representatives because they had this executive committee, which is mostly guys who you know made a lot of money and, and uh, you know right. they they're the right. veteran guys. Uh, but they went to the player reps and they said, okay, we want to do it, and they voted twenty six to four to accept the deal. Uh, so here's my point. I'm glad you said that. Um, I've been saying this the whole time. And, and, and there's no disrespect at all to anybody here when I say what I'm about to say. Um, when you have guys like Max Scherzer, maybe a Garrett Cole or somebody, and they're representing your team, trust me when I tell you they have the best interest of the players and the future of the game. Like They, have, they are 100% what's right for the game and what's right for the players currently. But when you have enough guys who have $100 million in the bank, um, they're the first ones that are willing to hold out. They're the first ones that are willing to say, no, nah, I'm not giving in at all. We'll sit out. It doesn't matter. It, it, they can do that. They can afford that. When you put a Josh Towers in there or somebody on the first-year arbitration, et cetera, they're like, hold on, dude, I need these paychecks, and they see it slightly different. So if you put enough guys in who have got these massive contracts already and it's already cleared their bank accounts, 
they're going to be willing to sit around a little bit longer and fight this out. And if we skip a month or two, who cares? And then you got the other players again. are like, no, bro, I want to get back to playing. Like, I need this. A lot of us need this. And so even though I understand what you're saying, ah, I think I got to vote the other way, man. I want to get back to spring training. We still have a chance to get almost the whole season in. So let's do that. So I think, I think that's kind of like the perception at times is you got to be careful. Although guys have the best interest of the game, they're also willing to sit out a little longer. And then these guys have the best interest of the game, but they can't afford to sit out a little longer. And we have to have a nice mix of that to make sure that our voting is, 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 is accounted for on every level and not just some. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting that you had all eight of those committee members, the, the, those veteran guys, voting against it, and then, you know, 26 to 4 in favor of the deal for the, you know, players that are the player reps. So it really did and, and get then, divided up. Well, and then some of those veteran guys have been around long enough to see the game change over time. I mean, not, not quite maybe Verlander. He came in a little after me. But, like, like, I came in in a game where steroids were legal. There was no... It was never an issue. Steroids were not a thing. Like, no one knew that, like, you couldn't take it. It was never even something talked about. And then all of a sudden, you couldn't take steroids. And then rookies who were first-round draft picks never got to go to big league camp right away. They had to go to minor league camp and earn it. Next thing you know, you're taking rookies and sending them straight to big league camp, not earning anything in the minor leagues. And now, we, so we've gone through these transitions of veteran guys to get the veteran guys out. To earn what you get, to all kind of just give you spring training to now, shoot, you might not even have to see the minor leagues. I'm just going to rush you to be like, like I've seen every level of this game and how it's changed dramatically. There's still a couple guys in the game who've seen a lot of that happen. Not quite all of it, but a lot of that happened. And so their take on the game is through a decade and a half or two decades of, uh, you guys don't understand what I'm taking from 15 years ago. You guys have only been in the game for five years, and so you only know analytics when I knew the game pre-analytics as well. And so there's a, it, there has to be a balance of all of it if we're really going to have an understanding of everything that we're fighting for, pre and post. Yeah. So there are still questions, I think, Josh. I mean, you think about uh, free agents getting compensated and young players in the game because they're they're you know the owners are trying to save money by not paying so much for those free agents do you do you still see this as a problem even with this new deal listen when you give Corey Seager 10 years 350 uh, <laughs> I don't want to hear you cry about anything I don't want to hear anybody well we we couldn't compete well then go find somebody else I guarantee you can find somebody else for a lot less money that can do the same job like or how about this how about fight to get the minor league game? season the minor league teams back so we can develop better so that there's a whole bunch of Corey Seagers out there and not just four right so there's a there's a lot of ways that owners can fight this and do better there's a lot of ways baseball can can develop a heck of a lot more talent to where there's very few studs in our game that deserve 350 million there could be a lot more guys and so by default I'm not going to pay that much money because I have a lot more options of guys I can instead of give 350 I can get 200 to etc but the way we've changed our game the way we've changed the draft that in our 20 round draft, and I only have an allotment of X amount of money, only about four dudes are going to get all of the money. Those are the only four guys I care about. Well, if they turn out to suck, I still got to send them to the big league because they're the ones that I invested in. So I can't say that I'm, I messed up. I'm wrong. So we're going to rush those four guys to the big leagues over anybody else. And then turns out maybe one of those four are actually big leaguers, but, and so now our big league game gets watered down a little bit and they're not as good. And so the Corey Seegers of the world who are really good, 
look exceptionally great, and now I got to give them 350. When if I just developed everybody and changed that system again the way it used to be, then I would have 35 potential guys instead of four potential guys. And the owners don't even see it from the right perspective, man. There's a way to make our game better for them to pay a lot less money and also for a lot more people to make money. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the development, too, and I, I want to talk about starting pitchers because you were one of them. And it's just a shame that, I mean, you got starters that really can't go more than five innings, and a lot of it is because of the way they're being developed. They're not really allowed to throw many pitches anymore. What's been your opinion about you know the way the game has changed since you were coming up through the minor leagues and the way starters are handled? I was with the Mets organization in 2019, uh, now, it's a different regime now. The, the player, uh, director of player development's gone and the GM's gone and everything now. But we weren't, uh, my pitchers were not allowed to run. They weren't allowed to run. They weren't allowed to shag because they didn't want them to get tired. <laughs> and I was like, well, if you don't put in exercise, then how can you be an athlete? Like, you're going to fatigue if you don't, get, if you don't put yourself in shape. So by not doing something, you're actually going to get more tired. And luckily, you don't let guys go past five innings anyways because they wouldn't be able to breathe after four anyways because they're going to be gassed on the mound. Um, right. There's a lot of things that have changed in our game, and, and the cardio aspect is one. We're not creating athletes that can do something for a long time. We're babying guys so they don't get hurt, which means you're going to get hurt a little bit more, probably a little quicker, because now we're, we're being very protective of you. we got a lot of people in the game who've never played the game who understand whatever through reading books, et cetera, and that's fine. But you also have to have done something to understand what the body, the brain, and everything goes through in order to get the most out of it. And, and so there's just a lot of things that have changed. Um, by default, we're not really allowed to go five innings because a lot of these front office smarties think that, like, oh, the third time through the lineup, the pitcher struggles. And that may be the case for some. Uh, but also there's others that third time through the lineup they actually get better because I'm setting you up as the game goes on. The flip side is they don't understand that when a starting pitcher goes deep in a game, it saves the bullpen. So I don't have to use the bullpen too much to where I tax them. It, there's a nice base for some guys are going to have a bad day and some guys are going to have good days. And it lets the bullpen do the job that it's designed to do, not just pitch for any old reason. But then again, I'm getting managed from up top, so I have to do what they kind of say because I want my job, so i got to protect it, so i kind of got to listen. So it's my fault, but it's not really my fault. It's their fault, but I'll take And there's too much of that going on. So the, the actual playing of the game has kind of been lost in, in how, you, how you develop to be good at playing the game has been lost in the shuffle when it comes to all of this as well. The, the analytic aspect, man, like, it, it holds a lot of value, but it has altered the way the game has been perceived as well. And so there's just it, there's just a lot of things that they're throwing against the wall and seeing what sticks, but they're not really quite sure what's going to work. I mean, I think the Astros manager, um, Dusty Baker, said it best. He said the thing about analytics is it doesn't teach you how to get better. And I think that's the number one thing that's been lost in our game is is, is how, how do I get better? Like, or... I'm as good as it gets right now because analytics say that my my downhill vertical break is at 16.5, and that's major league average, so that's as good as it gets. Well, then how do I use it? But they can't answer that question. So there's a lot of crazy things going on, man. Does it drive you crazy when you see a starting pitcher who's rolling? I mean, he's he's pitching well. We've seen it in the World Series. Pitchers, yes. you know, starting pitchers doing really well. He's through five innings, whatever. Boom, they just take him out of the game. I mean, does that drive you crazy? Yeah, for, for no reason. Like, again, what, I think the number one thing lost in our game is 
is the fact that it's human element. We're not playing computers. If we were playing robots and computers, then this would be easy to manage, right? And you're trying to manage a game and determine a game before it's played. You can't do that. We got human element involved. We have real people. We have real weather. We have real preparation, real weights, real everything. And you're trying to tell me what you think that person is going to do before the game's ever played. I have a tendency of what I think they might do, just given their history. But I also have to factor in today's, today's everything and, and what they did last week and the previous week. And there's a lot of things. And so by predetermining what's going to happen before it happens, is kind of crazy. Like you're not even giving me an opportunity to show you what my genius is or why I'm even here in the first place. If we're just basing it off of some, you know, some algorithm that you guys created that you're looking at a computer and suggest this, that's not really the case. I mean, again, you might be a dead pool hitter, but you are over your last 12 and you're tired of doing that and you see a hole on the right side, you might tip something that tells me you're going to shoot that way, but I can't turn around and tell my defense to go back to normal. Um, and then all of a sudden you get a base hit. What I learned or what I saw or what I set you up for goes out the window. Like It's, it's just crazy on the fact that we're trying to predetermine. I mean, I had a kid in, in double-A last year. It's a big-time matchup in double-A, a kid that I work with. Um, they called his game before the game started. And this is a kid who throws, he gets up to like 95, 96, 97 miles per hour. He sits at 93, 94, some of the best stuff in the world. And he ended up throwing 30% fastballs versus the double-A team because the people tried to predetermine how they were going to call the game before it happened because they were, they were afraid of the team he was playing because they were full of prospects. And he's like, dude, it was mind-blowing. Like, He's like, I didn't even get to set him up or use my stuff to set him up. Or if my changeup was good, I got off balance. I didn't even get to use the fastball. They, they didn't see it. He goes, it was the craziest thing. I was like, so your game was called before the game ever ever happened. He's like, yeah. Oh. And I was like, I'm, I'm officially impressed. <laughs> obviously, obviously, it didn't go well for him. No. Obviously. And that's nuts. <laughs> Josh, uh, you know, you think about they talk about pace of play and you know, we, we know the games have lasted a lot longer, but I think one of the reasons is that a lot of pitchers are really afraid to face hitters. I mean, they're thinking, okay, I don't want to give up a home run ball. So you see a lot more walks. Of course you see more strikeouts, but you were known as a guy who had great control. I mean, we, we nicknamed, you were nicknamed uh, before you even got to Rochester control towers. I always like that, that nickname for you because you didn't walk batters. In fact, in your major league career, you averaged one and a half walks per nine innings. I mean, that's really, really low. You just don't see pitchers doing that now. I mean, they're afraid to go after hitters. Do you agree? Yeah, but how they're being taught and told is completely different. Like, I was just taught to play the game and you go as long as you are having success and then things change and my stuff, I mean, I wouldn't even be involved in today's game. I would never get drafted today. But um, my stuff didn't, like, I didn't have strikeout stuff, right? So, no matter how bad these guys' swings are and the different things they, they change, still I'm not a strikeout guy, and so I had to pitch the contact. So I had to learn to pitch within inches of whatever I was trying to accomplish and try to get you to hit the ball where I wanted you to get the ball to go, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's kind of different with me because th- things wouldn't change too much for me outside of the fact that I just wouldn't even be allowed to play um, today's baseball game at all. But it, there's a lot that goes into that as well. Like First off, we're not letting them go past five because – I mean, Max Scherzer got pulled in the postseason, um, and he was dealing. We're not allowed to go past five, so now we're kind of not even training their bodies to really be able to go past five anyway. So it's kind of like a an offset there. Um, and then you know we're 
developing all these guys to throw 100 because we feel like that's the caveat to where it's hard to hit. So then I'll just pull my bullpen pull guys to throw 100. And if he doesn't have it, then I'll pull him. And I got enough guys to where I'll worry about tomorrow or later. Tomorrow's not a big deal. We're not even looking down the road of how we're going to get through this week. We're only really caring about today. And then, well, I'll just go to the minor leagues and pull somebody else up. There's just a, a, a whole bunch of things that, in my opinion, don't make sense. But when you're, when you're forced to coach and you're forced to manage looking over your shoulder to the point where you have to protect your job based on every decision you made, you're not really in control. And so a lot of these guys, in my opinion, like managing-wise, they wouldn't do a lot of the stuff we see. I don't. The Kevin Cash that I know, that I played with multiple, multiple years, would have never pulled Blake Snell. That was not how he, his genius of calling games and getting us deep in games and the stuff that he would do and how he established our stuff. And it was, it was brilliant. He would never have pulled Blake Snell in the World Series. So, like, when I see that happen, I know that wasn't Kevin's decision. I don't care what anybody tells me. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I agree with you. It's not the manager. It's really what's going on above him. Now, you you touched, Josh, on the steroids era, and you had to pitch through that. Tell me a little bit about how much you knew what was going on before you know it really became public and how that all transpired for somebody you know who's trying to play the game clean, and yet you're facing hitters that are juiced up in the early 2000s. Yeah, it didn't matter. Again, like, it was... It's like, how can I explain this on a seriously relative level? It's like, um, it's like every day before a game or whatever, you, you drink, let's say Coke, like Coca-Cola is your drink, right? You, every day you have a Coke okay, and that's your pretty game, whatever. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden one day they're like, Hey, you can't drink Coke anymore. They're illegal. And you're like, all right, cool. I'll stop. And then somebody else comes in and goes, well, you can never go to the Hall of Fame because you drank Coke. And you're like, wait a minute. It wasn't illegal. Like, no one knew. That's just what, like, what I drank. I didn't know. And then once they told me to stop, I stopped. And now you're going to hold it against me for something that wasn't illegal? Like, what are you talking about? That's the way I feel with steroids. Like, steroids were around everywhere. Uh, whether they're illegal in life was completely different. They weren't something that was banned upon, frowned on, talked about, that anybody ever put any consideration on. Because, you know, people just use them. It's just the way it was. And so, sure, I saw it all over the place when I got there. Um, but that's just whoever was taking it. That was just, a, just something that, you know, they wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, Major League Baseball comes in one day and says, hey, we're going to test for steroids here in a couple of years, and so everybody needs to start getting off of them if you're taking them. And we're like, all right, cool. And so then a majority of people started to, to eventually get off of them um, and still play the game. And and to to hold it against a Mark McGuire or something like that is just, it's just it's just crazy. To act like guys in the Hall of Fame didn't take steroids is even crazier. I mean, we had a guy just going to the Hall of Fame the other day who was on the list, who we proved, who got busted, from what I understand, for taking the stuff. And, and, and so, like, to act like there's guys in the Hall of Fame that aren't or didn't take steroids is crazy. To act like steroids were just around in the, in the, in the turn of the century was insane. Steroids have been around for decades and decades. It's always been around. It's just been something that is. It's just we got caught up in an era where – it became a vocal point to where we had to get it out of our game for whatever reason. And now you're holding it against people. I think it's a joke. And, and, and the flip side to playing against guys that were on steroids, it wasn't a big deal. Like if I hung a pitch to Piazza or somebody, he was going to hit it over the fence. It didn't matter. But if I located a pitch, I was going to get him out. So I don't care if you're on steroids or not. Like my job was still to, 
throw quality pitches to get you out, and I could. Um, steroids, like, you can load me up with steroids, and it wasn't going to make me a major league hitter. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's not, I don't know, I just didn't see it as that big of a deal. Yeah, I mean, I always wondered about how much it really would help a pitcher. I mean, in Roger Clemens' case, you know, he's being held back from the Hall of Fame and, and you know, Barry Bonds, but those are two different types of players. Uh, you know, is that the same thing if you're talking about a pitcher getting an advantage? Yeah, I don't know. Barry Bonds is the greatest player to ever play the game, so, you know, he could have hit right-handed and probably still been a Hall of Famer. Um, <laughs> and Roger Clemens was pretty good, too. So, like, I, I don't know, like... I don't. I mean, again, those those two dudes never tested positive. We can you know speculate all we want, but the fact of the matter is, uh, it didn't matter. They were they were that good. Joe, there's a lot of guys that took steroids, like in, in AAA back then when we were there that weren't very good. Like to to, to like to, to act like steroids was going to make you a good baseball player is crazy. Yeah, you have to be able to hit the ball at first. <laughs> you got to be able to do a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Who uh, who are the guys that got in the box, especially when you first got to the major leagues? When you uh, first got on the mound and you said, "Wow, I, I, how am I going to face this guy?" You know, a lot of it is about name and reputation, and then you have to, you know, have the confidence to be able to get those guys out. Yeah, it took a while to. Uh, I mean, when I first got to the big leagues, I was very very successful, and then the second half of the season that that faded. I learned a lot about why I struggled the second half of the season, et cetera. Um, but with that said, when I first got there, it was tough. Like, it, it, I saw the name on the back of the jersey uh, and not really just who they were and what their tendencies and holds are, et cetera. And so, like, it got – it was tough to be like, holy shit, that's, that's so-and-so. Like, I just saw him on TV last year. Like, and I'm really on the same field with him. Like, it took a long time to get past that to, like, to get it to your head that like you are a major league guy with these players now they're not just some people you see on tv on a whole nother level it was it took a minute i mean the first time i got called into a game uh ben Grieve was standing on second base i remember running in from the outfield and 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 when i ran by ben Grieve, i remember looking up at him it was like he was 10 feet tall man it was just like holy shit that's ben Grieve, <laughs> and i'm just like in awe as i'm running by and it was in like cal ripley jr standing out there and david segui and like it was Vinny Castillo's getting ready to bat and like I was just like, Where am I right now? It was it was it was hard to get past that and like, there was a moment of a time where it's like, Bro, you need to snap out of this, like otherwise you're gonna get your stuff turned around pretty quick. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about two thousand and five with the Blue Jays. Uh that was a really good year for you. You had over two hundred yeah. innings pitched, which we're not seeing that anymore, but you had a three point seven one ERA and you were on a staff with the late Roy Halliday. I wonder how much you learned from him. Yeah, that's my dog. Um, well, if you didn't learn from Miller Allen, you shouldn't be in the game. Um, yeah, he, it's, you know, you try to pick his brain as much as you can. You learn all kinds of stuff. I mean, just work ethic alone, um, you will probably learn the most from because he was a leader by example, not really a vocal guy. So um, just philosophy, just learning, like, how to run balls off the plate and not bring them to the barrel as much. I didn't have that luxury, but understanding, like, the premise of what you're trying. Like, there's a lot of things that you learn from him. But the the funny thing about that season, uh, it was the only reason I got to pitch all the time and I got 200 innings because freaking Roy got hurt at the All-Star game in Texas at the All-Star break, like, right before. Uh, we're in Texas, and he got hurt, so he was out the rest of the year. 
Ah. So as soon as he got hurt, the Jays were like, oh, we lost. We can't make the postseason without Roy. So at that point, they were like, all right, well, let's just let Towers and Chasun pitch all the time and see what happens. And by default, they just let us go out there and do our job and never really worry about pulling us. And next thing you know, we're pretty good, and we're going 200 innings, and we got a 3-7, and it's like, oh, maybe these dudes are pretty good when we just let them pitch. But if Roy was, uh, if Roy never got hurt, I'd probably would have threw 150 innings that year. I mean, to do that well in that division as far as pitching says a lot, too. I mean, when you're going up against Yankees and Red Sox hitters uh, at that time, you know, those those uh, lineups were pretty uh, devastating, and you're facing them all the time. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've heard that a lot in my life. Like, oh, you were always in the AL East, but I, did, I never knew any better because that's the only place I ever was. Like, you don't think about that stuff when you're playing. You're like, I just played for the Orioles, and I'm hoping to get to the big leagues, and and if I get to the big leagues, then, all right, who's on the schedule today? Like, you don't think about, like, oh, that's my division and they're so much tougher and, oh, you know, I deserve sympathy or but whatever. No, like, it's just, all right, who's on the schedule? All right, that's who we play today. And we just happen to face those teams 19 times a year. And then, you know, when I got let go by the Orioles, rightfully so, like, Toronto picked me up and I didn't even think about it. I was back in the AL East and never even crossed my mind. It was just, oh, this team wants to give me an opportunity to play again. Cool, I'll sign with them. Uh, and then you were like, all right, let me work my way to the big leagues again. And then you do that, mission accomplished. And then how do I stay here? So, like, you never think about that type of stuff when you're playing. It never once crossed my mind that, oh, maybe I'd be better in the National League where I'm really good at fielding my position and I can hit um, and I can punt. Maybe maybe if I play there and there's a, there's no DH, like maybe I would. Like, that stuff never crosses your mind. It's just, all right, who do we got today? Let's go to work. At the end of your major league career, you're with the Yankees. I know it was a short stint, but you did get a World Series ring. And and there's a team that you know that was a, a rival team of yours. So tell me about when you when you first joined that team, and you got you know you go in that clubhouse, and there's Andy Pettit and CC Sabathia and A Rod and Derek Jeter and those guys. I mean, did you look around and just say, wait, what am I doing here? I was in AAA for the first part for most of it. And when I was in AAA, I was there like a week when Brian Cashman came down there, which you don't really see too often. And obviously, you know, I've been in the big leagues for a long time prior to that and always faced those guys. Like, Cashman came up to me in AAA in Scranton. He's like, so what do you think? And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, what do you think about, like, the organization? <laughs> and I was like, can I be honest with you? And he goes, yeah. And I was like, well, it, you know, it was always F the Yankees. I was like, I was a Blue Jay. I was an Oriole. <laughs> Like, everybody always hated the Yankees. And so, like, to me, it was always up you guys. So I never really gave you guys a peace of mind. Like, I just, my whole goal was to beat you guys because you're always the pinnacle. So I go, so that was a mindset coming in. I was like, but, man, I've been here a week, and now I understand why everybody wants to be a Yankee and why everybody, once they sign here, their their tone changes. Like, I had so much respect in one season with that organization and the things that they did for us in the minor leagues, forget the big leagues. They, they set a foundation in the minor leagues that when you get to the big leagues, you have so much respect for the organization and for the game of baseball. It's just different than anywhere else I've been. And nothing against Toronto or Baltimore or anywhere else, but no other organization presented that and made you want to come to the field in the minor leagues because you respect the organization so well that you wanted to do your job. No one cared that we had to wear collar shirts in the minor leagues. No one cared that you had to shave or cut your hair. We policed ourselves. The manager never had to say anything to us because it's like the precedence was set from the guys previous, 
And it was just an, an unbelievable experience. I mean, little things that people, unless you played the game, you would never know. Uh, but you've been on some buses. When we would <laughs> go and bus out of there, like, we would have two buses instead of one. And that's a big deal to players. And then on both buses, there would be like 10 pizzas on both buses. So even though we just ate, there would be like 10 pizzas on both buses. And so you would have two or three rows yourself, and then everybody basically had their own pizza or half a pizza. So when we're three hours into a trip and we're hungry again because we're athletes, like, boom, there was pizza waiting for us. And the team paid for all this. And it was just, it was unbelievable. And they were willing to work with you. And it was like, hey, if we have any trips, like six or seven hours or less, can you just cancel the flights and book us a, 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 a bus? Because it's so much easier for us getting in at five in the morning and going to bed opposed to waking up at four, catching two flights. And all right, cool. And they worked with you. And then you get to the big leagues and you have so much respect for the organization that it's like, now I know why everybody wants to get here. They have this worst rap of like, oh, they just go and pay for players, which is 100% false. But when you experience all this, you don't ever want to leave that organization. And so it's just, it's like you look at that team, and again, I knew in August that they would win the World Series. It was just amazing. Like, the approach every day when I got there was, all right, how do we win as a team? That's all anybody cared about. What can we do to win as a team? And everybody had, like, a design role. You know, Swish was in charge of the radio, and getting people fired up and Jeter was the guy who made fun of everybody and kept it, everybody instigated and stuff. And, and, and to share was the guy that took everything to our manager and everybody had a role of like, like what we would do collectively as a team and how we were going to approach everything. And it was just massively like impressive to see because it was only about winning. And so you look at our team and it's like, all right, well, the worst player on your team was Josh Towers who had eight years in the big leagues by default, you're going to be much more successful. But, like, why did they create that? How do they know to get all these guys? And, and their approach was – it was just impressive. And so you go back and you look at the team and you see Jerry Harrison's and Josh Towers and Eric Hinsky's and you see guys like that or who, who are the bench players for these guys, the Chad Godans of the world. And you look at these young prospects and, you know, we had – Phil Hughes and uh, Mark Melanson and 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 uh, why am I blanking on the other closer that was in the big oh, forever? Mariano Rivera. Well, not Mariano, but the uh, David Robertson, and we had all these homegrown kids that were right. just beast and Melky and Robinson Cano, and and it was just it was, it was just a, an amazing scene every day walking in that clubhouse. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Jerry Harrison because I was really happy for him to to get a ring too because he was on that team in in Rochester. And by the way, speaking of Rochester, I'll never forget Tim Laker once made up T-shirts that said, "I want my two buses" because I think they they had two buses for a little while and then they didn't have the two buses, so he wanted them, and so he made up T-shirts for everybody. It really was important well, to have the two buses. And, well, think about that too. So you got a first year kid in 2000 and Josh Towers who's stoked to be in AAA for the first time. Bro, you could have told me to sit on the floor and I wouldn't have cared, right? <laughs> like, I was just happy to be in AAA. Like, this is the step below the big leagues, and I finally made it here. Like, this is dope. And then you got a guy like Tim Laker who's been in the big leagues for a few years, bouncing back and forth. He's a veteran dude who's had success in the big leagues, et cetera. And he doesn't want to be doubling up. He doesn't – he doesn't. He needs his own seat. He's got a couple extra bags. He sees things differently. He might have a family and kids, and, and I don't. I'm running around chasing girls, et cetera. Like – like you just got to understand that there's so many different levels of people at that AAA level that you kind of want to be able to 
to, to show some respect for all of them and not assume that we're all the same because we are not all on the same level when we get to that level. And so for a guy like Tim Laker, it's very important. And how do I get the best out of a guy who's up and down and has to be very successful? Otherwise, he's never going to get an opportunity. And you got some first-year guy in Josh Towers. It doesn't matter what he does. He's, like, on the, on the way up. And so, like, it, you know, he, he's going to get more opportunities than I do. He doesn't have to be perfect because he's a young, up-and-coming kid, et cetera. And, like, like it, it's just it, – it's, it's crazy the little things that matter – to us, it's funny that Tim said that, and then I brought it up, you know, 10 years later. It's funny that, like, you know, as a coach, as an organization, I'm trying to figure out how I can get the best out of my players in order to be successful. And at times it can be something as simple as that. By the way, on that Yankees team, Alex Rodriguez, who, if my memory serves, I think you hit him with a pitch, and didn't he charge the mound? So, I mean, I think that was only a, a few years before you joined the Yankees. So was that a little awkward? There was a lot of awkward moments, man, because I ran my mouth about Tony Pena because it got into a fight with him the same time I drilled Alex. Uh, you know, what Alex did, it's well documented. He, he he crossed the line. He did something he never should do, and he was always going to get hit. Major League Baseball just happened to get involved like they always do at the wrong times, and they just prolong something that the longer something, you know, you know sits there and just boils and boils, and it makes it worse. Instead of letting that just hit him as next at bat, Major League Baseball, you know, of course, get involved and mess it all up. So it just caused, like, anger to to just boil, boil. And so finally, you know, I drill him, and he, he was never going to come to the mound. He yelled, and it came about, you know, a couple steps, and just long enough to where the bench is cleared to where it looked like he was going to do something. And then all the other frustrated players on both sides got into a fight, and we ended up fighting twice that day. Um, when I got to the Yankees a couple of years later, like, there was still some hostility and, and, and pissed off people for what I said about Tony. And, you know, whether I was right or whether I was wrong, it's not something that you go to the media and say. I was just pissed off when I spoke to the media. And so apologizing to Tony, even though I felt I was right, was the hardest thing for me to do. And he was professional with how he handled it. And then um, Alex knew that he was going to get drilled. That was no secret. So when I got there, you know, he was one of the first dudes that welcomed me to the team. Uh, and we've always been cool ever since. Um, again, it was it just needed to happen. And so, you know, we were super cool. The ironic part is that season, things had still been festering and boiling from, the, from those days. It wasn't very long after that incident. And now I'm in a Yankee uniform playing the Blue Jays, and uh, one of the boys got smoked, and now we have another fight because of this incident, you know, a year plus later. And here I am in the opposite uniform, from one of the dudes that started this shit in the beginning. And I'm like, well, I can't. I was telling Mariana, I was like, I can't go. I can't run out there and fight. Like, I'm, I should be in the Blue Jay uniform for this. And and I think he said something like, just slow jog it to make it look like it. <laughs> <laughs> Great advice from the Hall of Famer, for sure. Hey, Josh, you, you really have to love baseball, too, when you're done with Major League Baseball and you're pitching in the Mexican League and for the Camden River Sharks uh, for independent baseball. So, I mean, that, that kind of tests your love of the game, right? Well, I, I was retired. I got through my stint with the, 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 the Dodgers, and it was just very difficult to, like, I'm in that Tim Laker days at this point, and I have to be perfect to get to the big leagues. I'm playing with 20-year-old kids, first-year in AAA, and it was very, very difficult. And, and, and so I ended up retiring that year with the Dodgers, um, and 
I was just sitting at home and, and I was done and I was really bored. And you're, you're, you're in a routine where every day of your year it's documenting. I know exactly what I'm going to do every single day of my year when I'm playing. Where now all of a sudden I'm on the couch and I don't know what to do. Like I, I don't have a job and I have no idea what to do. And so once spring training rolls around next year, you're kind of like, uh, well, I don't know, maybe I guess I'll go play baseball. I'm kind of bored. So I ended up in Mexico, which is a very shit. I, I was there not too long, and I can write a book about that experience. It was unbelievable, <laughs> the things that I experienced, man, and it was crazy. Uh, I was there briefly with Howie Clark, man. It was unbelievable. God dang, I think about some of the stories, and I just can't believe what I'm even like remembering that happened. <laughs> but um, that didn't. Let me say that didn't last very long. I think I was there in, in in Oaxaca, and I think I lost like 14 pounds in 10 days. Like we just didn't. They didn't feed us. It was impossible to eat. Oh. If we if we lost, there was no hot water. There was no food. And like you know how skinny I am. Like I don't need to be losing weight. So that that didn't last very long. And then I was at home, and I've always said I'll never play independent ball. Like I never, I said I would never play it. I think it's a disrespectful version of the game, and I, I just was never going to do it. And Toby Hall and another kid from Vegas, and there was all kinds of dudes on that team that I knew. And so I'm getting this pressure to come, come play with us, come play with us, come play with us. <laughs> and finally I caved, and I went to go play with these guys in Camden. And again, I could write another book for the time I was there. It was, it was, it was unbelievable, but. It, it was everything that – why I said I would never go. It was the most disrespectful version of baseball I'd ever seen. Coaches just – coaches would be out there with no shirt on and bandanas throwing batting practice. Oh. Stretch would be at 4 o'clock and guys would walk in at 358. Um, no one cared. There was no accountability. Coaches would get paid off wins. And, and it was just – like any version or any way, like just watching dudes throw, throw bullpens with – cut off shirts and like like ties around their bicep to make their biceps look bigger and like it was like what are we doing man like are you, like you would you want to get back to the big leagues which is why you're here but you're going to disrespect this game like this like to the level of like if somebody's watching you would never do that in a professional organization why would you do it here because there's nobody there's no boss telling you you can't like this, are you out of your mind and it was it was the most I, I i to this day i'm still i still regret every minute of going there um, cause I said I would never do it for those reasons. And it turned out to be everything that like, I hate about like people and how you can disrespect something because you think someone's not looking. It was embarrassing. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So now you're doing mortgages and you're involved in this wiffle ball league, which is very intriguing. <laughs> I actually watched a, an inning of that uh, because it's on Twitch and I, I caught yeah, the link yeah. that you had out. So t- tell me, how did you get did involved get in that? What's <laughs> I, I didn't see you, I just I, but I saw some of it. T- what, tell me what's going on with that. It's dope, man. It's dope. So I was uh, golfing at Cascada in my caddy that day. We just got to chopping it up, and, and somebody told him I played, I think. And so we were just chopping up about baseball the whole time we're golfing. And he says, uh, he's like, yeah, I play in this wiffle ball league here in town. And I was like, bro, I sounds dope. Tell me about it. So he starts talking to me about it. I was like, oh, you guys take it serious. He goes, oh, no, for real. He's like, dude, you want to come out? And I was like, 100% I want to come out. And he's like, I think at first he didn't think I would, but I was like, yeah. So then he, he gets me an invite to come out and play um, and this guy, Adam Tannick, man, had created uh, this field on this property, and it's legit. Like, the whole field is legit, how it's built. The rules in which we, we play, play by are very strict. Um, the guys take it very serious. The league itself 
um, PLW, Premier League Wiffle, is something that they, they there's a lot of Wiffle Leagues around the country, I guess, and this one is one of the elite, if not the elite, and that's the whole goal is they want everybody to, like, to, to tune in and to watch it. I mean, we had 7,000 people on, on Twitch and something else the other night watching us play, which was really dope. Mm-hmm. Um, and we take it very serious. And we got some good players, man, and, and you see they're in full uniforms and stuff. It's kind of crazy. But they have announcers and scoreboards, and we have this control booth underneath. And it, like, it, like, it is it's not just a dirt field with a couple chalked up lines. It is a legit like wiffle ball stadium we have a big wall left field and there's seats on top and and it's pretty cool man and, and he actually sold the property and he bought another property down the street it'll be ready in about eight months i think and they're building a brand new field because like 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 he wants to be known as like the best wiffle ball league in the country or the world and, and we are for sure but he wants to make it better and so he's building this brand new field it's going to be like underground like four or five feet underground um, and like just the whole concept of how it's built with everything, like it's it's going to be legit. We have lights, obviously. We play at night. I'm telling you, man, it's it sounds crazy because it's wiffle ball, and we've all played wiffle ball in our front yard. But these guys decided to take it to a whole nother level. Um, and at some point, man, like it's to the point where they're like lofty goals, man. Like if we had seven thousand people watching there tonight, like the guy who started it, I think built some of his, his wealth on YouTube and selling YouTube channels and stuff. Yeah. And so I think, you know, you can make a ton of money off that. And so one of the goals is to make enough money to not just put back into the field to upkeep it and make it amazing, but it's, at some point to make enough money to, like, where you can even pay the players to come play, et cetera. Like, they got lofty goals for this. Are you pitching every five days? And how, how's your breaking ball with that wiffle ball? Are you working the corners? <laughs> how's this working? It's hard, bro. So, like, you're at your distance, and you cannot throw above 55 miles per hour, oh. which is crazy because that's very hard for me to stay underneath. And and it's not like what you see where you see these guys throwing and making it move a country mile. It's impossible to hit. If we could throw as hard as we can, you would never get a hit. It'd be impossible. <laughs> but having rules to where you have to – if you throw above 55 miles per hour, if they swing, then it's, then it's live. But if they don't swing, it's an automatic ball, right? So – like keeping it under 55, like it makes the game competitive. Like I can make the ball move and do all kinds of stuff, but I also have to throw strikes. I have to keep it under a certain velocity to where I can't get crazy and start it behind you and you haven't, you can't hit it. And then like, if you walk to two guys, you're pulled, you cannot pitch again that game. So we have a lot of rules that like, it makes the game where I can get pretty tricky and cute and throw some crazy stuff, but it also makes the game where I have to come at you to where there's an actual baseball game going on too. So the rules are set up pretty cool. I wish they would change it to 60. I think it would make it a little bit uh, more competitive for me, but it's 55 right now. Yeah, you know, if you were just a ball player, you would think maybe that would throw you off. But actually, Kevin Mitchell once said that he played wiffle ball in the offseason because it helped him stay on the ball. So, I mean, maybe it I'll helps you as a hitter. I'll tell you what, you, uh, you're not recklessly swinging. I mean, you got balls starting behind you, starting off a plate. You never know what these half-old half wiffle balls are going to do. So... It helps your hand-eye coordination, man. If you're the, like I, it'd be cool to have some major league hitters come out here. You'd be humbled right away, but it does lock your focus in for sure. All right, Josh. Hey, before I let you go, uh, anytime I'm driving with my girlfriend up 101 up the coast, uh, we go through Port Wyneme, and I brag, <laughs> I brag about the fact that I can pronounce it, and and I'm constantly reminding yes. her, I'm saying, hey, that's Port Wyneme, and that's where Josh Towers is from. 
Uh, and I learned that because when I was in Rochester, I had to find out how to pronounce it. And there was something about, I think your dad was, you know, involved in surfboards. Uh, you know, so, I mean, that, that's your town right there. And it's very hard for anybody to pronounce if they don't know how to. Well, that's what I was going to say. When you're driving through, you could have just asked her to say it. And she, like, no one knows how to say it. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's funny that uh, you say it beautifully. Yeah, if you're not from Oxford or Wainimi, you don't know how to say Wainimi. And uh, rightfully so, because you never guess it starts with an H-U. Um, that's the town, man. That's that's home. That's uh, Wainimi surrounded inside Oxnard and in Ventura County. That's where uh, that's, that's where the magic is, man. That's where Anderson Park. How about that? We finally got a major star, man. We had boxers and baseball players, but we have uh, we have Anderson Park from Oxnard. That's the halftime Super Bowl show, boy. <laughs> and your da- didn't your dad have something to do with making surfboards or repairing them or something like that? Yeah, my dad was a shaper. Uh, my whole life, he shaped surfboards because uh, Wainimi is a beach. It's a port, port of Wainimi, and so we have our own beach. Um, and so my dad was a surfboard shaper my whole life, and had our own town surfboards and stuff. And so, um, yeah, if you if you if you surf at Wainimi Beach, you uh, you must surf a towers board, or you're probably going to get kicked off the beach <laughs> nicely. But you're going to get kicked off. Josh, thank you so much for the time. Hey, it just brings back so many memories thinking about when we were together in Rochester, and you you were always a joy to be around. Uh, so I wish you the best of luck, especially with the wiffle ball, and uh, thank you very much for coming on. All right, buddy. I appreciate it, man. That's Josh Towers, former Major League pitcher. Join us again next week for another edition of the Sports Virus Podcast. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Thanks for listening on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.